Our great God, our Father, would you um, condescend this morning to meet us with your presence again? Holy Spirit, would you continue to have room here in this place as, as we have sung by your power and we have invited your presence and we have relied upon your work so we do so afresh now. We ask, Lord Jesus, be lifted up and help us seeing you to desire in every way to be more like you. All for your glory, this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. John Stott said that at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Jonathan Edwards found himself in the middle of the first great awakening, and he was there to see some of the very first revivals of that awakening. Jonathan Edwards warned of some of the destructive power of pride. He called pride the most deceitful of all lusts. He called pride the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and the enemy of sweet communion with Christ. Listed first in Proverbs chapter 6, among those things that the Lord hates and which are an abomination to the Lord, first we find haughty eyes, the haughty eyes of the proud. Proverbs 16, we find this caution. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Alternatively, the Lord takes special notice of the humble, Scripture says. He draws near to the contrite in heart, and he dwells with the lowly in spirit. Psalm 51, Isaiah 57, Isaiah 66. Truly, pride is our greatest enemy because it puts us at enmity with God himself. And truly, humility is our greatest ally because it is used of God to bring us into concert with his blessing, his reward, his glory, and his purposes. We returned to the middle of this grand passage that comes at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2 this morning, one ver verses 1 through 11. We're going to pick up where we left off this morning in just a moment, starting in verse 5. What we find or found a couple weeks ago in looking at those opening verses will leave us with this question. What is it that will restrain us when we are bent on rivalry and one-upsmanship? Ever felt that before amongst your buddies or a co-worker or a family member where you just want to win this discussion? What is it that will rescue us when we are prone to think our little efforts at empty glory will fill our souls and bring us the adulation that we so crave from men? What will rescue us when that is our thinking? What is it that will stop us short when our ingrained pride takes reign and we are overcome with our self-importance and our self-interest? Answer, the mind of Christ. The very mind of Christ, Paul will tell us, living in us by his, by his Holy Spirit and by the power of the Spirit of God will and can rescue us. 
This pride which shrinks our soul, fuels our strife, destroys our unity, and puts us as adversaries with God, this pride is hamstrung by having the mind of Christ. And it is repurposed by having the thought of Christ, we will see this morning. All the work of grace comes to us in the transforming mercies of God to form us more into the image of Christ when we submit to seek the mind of Christ. So that's really the introduction and what we have seen in the opening four verses of the chapter. We come now then to verse 5 of Philippians 2, and we come to the deepest solution to our inmost problem. Pick up with me and let's read together about the glory of humility. Philippians 2.5. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One command in our passage this morning, one only. Have the, man, have the mind of Christ. Paul earnestly desiring unity for this body, knowing the struggles that they will face, their circumstances, knowing the persecutions that they will undergo, knowing that they are the hope of God in the world as the followers of Christ and with the, the message of redemption. He says, I, I earnestly pray for you that you'd stay unified. And then he begins to work into what that's going to look like. It's going to come only by your humility. And then after talking about that for a few verses, he gives them the consummate resource through this command, have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ, we are told, and then what we are given is what that looks like. First, in our passage this morning, we find that the mind of Christ is true humility. The mind of Christ is true humility. In his humility, Christ being not confused about reality, what does he know? Or another way to say the same thing is, if we were to have the mind of Christ, what might we have a transformed perspective to rightly see as he sees it? Both of those are the same things. In his humility, what does he know? First, and I just left you space to jot these down, to lose is gain. In fact, I'll give all three of them to you up front in this opening section so you can use your space judiciously as you choose. To lose is gain, to serve is glory, and submitted obedience is life. We're going to talk about all three of those first. To serve, pardon me, to lose is gain. To lose is gain. Now, this is a fixed principle in Scripture, a fixed principle of the reality in Christ who said, he who saves his life will lose it, but he who loses it for my sake will find it. That's a principle. And so we will see it in our passage here today. To release is to secure. To, to forego is to obtain. To let go is to guard. 
It's absolutely upside down from the way the world thinks of things. That's what we have in verse 6. He, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. A couple of comments here to put the pieces together. The word here for existed is not just was. It's a different Greek word. And the NAS translators have done a great job in translating with a different word. And they didn't just say that he was in the form of God. They say he existed. It's a stronger word that points to the very being. Jesus was the very nature of God. That was his state of being. And another key word here is the word form. It points to the idea of the very nature or essence of a thing. Jesus is himself and has been for all eternity the very essence of God. But here's what he did or did not do. He did not regard This is a statement about his mind. We highlighted this two weeks ago, how the battle for humility is going to begin in our minds. And if we don't win there the battle, then our chances are small of coming forth. That's why we're seeking the mind of Christ today. Here is the mind of Christ. He did not consider to grasp something. That's what the NAS reads. His mind, his thought, as he contemplates his own godness, as he considers who he is, and as he looks out upon the need of the cosmos, decides, considers, regards, makes a decision that grasping his godness isn't worth it. That clutching his position, that clinging to his rights and his privileges, they're not necessary. What he says in his thinking is that I won't demand what I could. I, who am the creator of all things, I, who have all glory, together with the Father and with the Spirit. These are rights and privileges that I do not feel as though I need to clutch them tightly to myself. That's the picture here. These are not something, these rights, to be demanded or exploited. That is the mind of Christ. What a beautiful picture. He who was very God did not harbor his rights his privileges, and his position. It's not that Jesus thought low of himself. It's that he did not consider his high position worth harboring or worth clinging to. Hallelujah that he did not, and so chose to forego his position, his rights, his privileges. How important is it to you to demonstrate to others your own importance? That's the question, because we find that often, sadly, I find that often, I feel the need to demonstrate to people how terribly important I am, and I really need you to understand this, to to see the value that I have in my own eyes. I want it to be in your eyes as well, and it's endemic to the flesh, isn't it? But Jesus Christ, who had higher position than I ever will, who who was owed and due all privilege, 
and all glory and all rights said, I shall not harbor these things. But he considered, he regarded, his mind was instead to know that to lose is gain. Brothers and sisters, that is the reality. Whether we understand it or not, whether in this moment, because we are maybe not as far as we would like to be in our walk with the Lord or at this very moment this morning, it's something that we agree with. It doesn't matter. It is true that to lose is gain. Christ saw that clearly. So he contemplates himself and the need of mankind and all the world. And he decides not to hang on. Think of the last argument that you had. Think of the last inner strife or turmoil where you felt maybe even a sense of nervousness and then a conflict arising within you about what to do. Chances are fairly good that within that conflict or inner strife, you will find great ego. James 4 says, where do strife and fights come from among you? Are they not from the pride within you? Seeking seeking to make yours what you want. Here's the great news for us fellow sufferers of pride. You don't always have to exercise your rights. You don't always have to cling to your privileges. This is true humility, the mind of Christ. He chose not to harbor his rank. Had he done it, he would have been just. He would have been glorified. He, he would have been magnificent. He would have been due all our praise had he never condescended to save a single human being, right? And yet how much more glory, how much more magnificence has he brought to himself by choosing true humility to lose his gain? Now let this same mind of Christ be yours, both by considering his example and by embracing his life that now lives in you. The mind of Christ is true humility, and what he knows is that to lose is gain. Second, he knows that to serve is glory. To serve is glory. Verse 7, he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant. Have, having considered or contemplated the situation, I don't know how that works with God who knows all things from eternity past to eternity future at an immediate glance. God doesn't learn anything. So I don't know exactly what it means that he considered or regarded we understand it's an anthropomorphism for us to try in our tiny little human thinking to get out what's going on in the eternal mind of Christ. But in, in one quick glance, he saw all the sweep and he considered. And then, second action, he emptied. He emptied himself, taking the form of servant. There have literally been books written about this word. What does it mean that Christ emptied himself? I'm not even going to begin the first introduction of any of those books this morning. I think John Calvin had a fabulous statement that summarizes it well for me. 
He said that essentially this, Christ didn't divest himself of Godhead, but rather he concealed it and he poured it into a new and unimaginable state. Where does Calvin get that idea? You, you can rack your brain for a long time over figuring out what the self-emptying of Jesus Christ means and forget that it lives in a context. And in the context, we're told one and only one thing about that emptying. And do you know what it is that it tells us that it meant for him to empty himself? It means that he added something to himself. Is that how you think of emptying? No. But that's what the passage says, and that's what Calvin is responding to. He emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. So while he maintained all of the godness that he was and is, he poured it into a new form and took on something else. By taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's what he did. So rather, rather than exploiting, we find him stooping to serve his glory. The mind of Christ would inform us. He chose to give himself to serve others, and so is the exhortation to us. So is the reality in us when we're operating in the mind of Christ. We choose to serve others and give ourselves. Now, now Christ gave himself to serve others, and in all eternity, all in return will serve the one who served them all. We will gladly glorify the one who has served, and the stories of his service will never end question. Don't you want to join in them? Aren't you jealous to be a part of those stories of Jesus serving, stooping, condescending to wash the feet of broken, wretched, rebellious people? Don't you want to be a part of that? I do. And I know you do. To serve his glory. Will you choose glory? Through serving? Will you choose glory through humility? I've shared this story before, so I'll apologize, but it's too fitting not to share it here. Robertson McQuilkin died in 2016 at 88 years of age. He was well known for a number of things, a myriad of books and articles, a well known Christian. Leader. He was the president of Columbia uh, Bible College and Seminary, now Columbia International University, for about 22 years. McCulkin became the president in 1968, but he was best known probably in 1990 for stepping down from that position in order to care for his ailing wife, who had contracted Alzheimer's was suffering from Alzheimer's. During their 55-year marriage, they raised six children. For 12 years, they served, in mis served as missionaries in Japan. In fact, in 1968, when he took the job as president, his wife Muriel took a teaching position at the seminary, so she was no slouch herself. But in 1990, their love story went national, when after wrestling for some 
months for some period of time about his competing duties and calling to his position in the body of Christ as a servant of the Lord, as president of the seminary, as a well-known speaker, and his responsibility to his vows to Muriel. He had believing friends who counseled him to find good care for her and put her in a resident facility and continue in his duties. And he said, I can't. All I know is that she is happy when I am with her, and she is almost never at peace when I am not. He said, should I be beside her and serve her for 40 years, I would still die in her debt for all that she has done to serve me. He saw it as his privilege to serve Muriel until she passed. Brothers and sisters, the truth is that to serve is glory. Now let this same mind of Christ be yours, both by contemplating his example and by letting the life of Christ that is in you be your life. What does the Lord Jesus know in his humility? What is his mind? To lose is gain, to serve is glory. Third, submitted obedience is life. Submitted obedience is life. Verse 8 in verse 8, we find his third action. First, he considered or did not regard so as to clutch. Second, he emptied by taking on. And then third, he, he humbled. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. We've got to catch that connection to know how to apply this, to see it also in its beauty. Christ became obedient. To whom? We don't have to guess because we're going to know the, the other player in this drama because he will be mentioned in the very next verse, in the following verses. It's the Father. Christ became obedient to the Father. He became obedient to the will of God, not as though as he had been obedient before. Not as though he had, never, he, had, he had ever not done the will of the Godhead. But there was a peculiar sense of his obedience in doing this very new thing. In submitting himself to the Father's will. And, and therein is the path to our application. I've been asked before and you've been asked maybe as well. I've thought before, and you have thought and asked the question as well. What's the difference between a sacrificial humility and, and just being stomped all over? You want one litmus test. There are others. One is that true humility is submitted obedience. And a fully submitted obedience will know the correct boundaries, whereas to stop and say here and no further. Well, that's another study for another day. For here we find Christ wholly obedient, recklessly obedient, obedient to the point of death. The, the undying one dies. I wanted to spend a lot of time because that's just such a huge idea and I thought, I don't have time for that and I don't know what we're going to do with that. 
That's big, right? And his humility in dying brought life. He not only submitted himself to be a man, then he humbled himself to die, and he came to die in the most excruciating and cursed way, a cross kind of death. And through that death, he brought life. He was found in appearance as a man, verse 8 says. You need to know the word for form and the word for appearance are different words. That's why the NAS translates him with different words, and that's the point. He was the very form of God, the essence of God, and he took on the very form of a servant, the very essence of a servant. He was God and a servant, not something like them. He was them. And then he was found in appearance as a man. That doesn't actually mean that he was less than a man. It actually means that he was so much more. He was everything that it was to be human, but being human did not begin to speak of who Christ became. Fully human, but more than human. The point is, is that he divested himself of the appearance of Godhead so that he could carry out his task. All of the humbling of the Lord Jesus was done in willing obedience to his father. All of the the dying and the suffering was chosen by the son in submission to his father. It was done in concert with the will of the father. The point is all of this is his submitted obedience. That's the mind of Christ, to know that submitted obedience is life. Question, do you ever pursue any other things that you think will instead bring you life? Sure, lots of other things. But the place where life is found is walking in the power of the Spirit in that perfect relationship that the Father has with, pardon me, that the Son has with the Father. I'm the vine, you are the branches, right? You stay connected to me and I'll breathe life into you. Pause and consider the relationship within the Trinity. Do you think that within the Trinity there is or has ever been rivalry? You think the spirit comes and he's like, dad, I need to talk because what is up with the son? He gets all the headlines and I'm a little ticked off. What about me for a change? Do you know if you read about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, do you know what one of his job descriptions is? One of his job descriptions is to exalt the son. I love it. It's like he has the peculiar job to make him look great. There's no rivalry in the Godhead. Is there disunity? Well, there's never been disunity. In his weakness, the son asked, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But he did so submissively even as he asked. Has there ever been one upsmanship? Oh, yeah, you think that's good? Look at what I can do. That's, that's a good universe, but watch this one, right? Has there ever been contention? selfishness, envy, or conceit in the Godhead, never. Because there is perfect humility and harmony. There is perfect unity in the Godhead, and it is a glorious community that you and I were made for. And if you know Christ, you have been redeemed to experience now in glimpses and one day fully 
choose to submit yourself in obedience to God and let the Lord draw you more deeply. Let the Lord draw me more deeply into that life. Humility is following and agreeing and partnering with God in the power of the Spirit, with the mind of Christ. It may not always be romantic. It may be, will at times not even be profound. It might be very simple. But in acts both large and small, it will always be beautiful. Humility and serving are glorious. And submitted obedience is life-giving. Now let this same mind of Christ be yours, Paul says, both in meditating upon Christ's example and by virtue, as his, uh, by virtue of his life which lives in you now. The mind of Christ is true humility, and then we are told, we're told this, and then we are shown what that is, what it looks like to lose is gain, to serve is glory, submitted obedience is life. Now, now we're given not just a description of what it is, but now we're given a motivation to pursue it. Now we are told why it is that that is so attractive, humility. If you leave this morning, and you don't have a deeper thirst for humility than when you walk in the door, then Lord, help me, I've failed. Then the Spirit of God has not moved in you and the Word has not done its work. If I come to this passage and I do not walk away with a, an entirely different, otherworldly perspective of humility, then I have utterly missed the glorious, eternal work of God in this passage. Because humility, brothers and sisters, is so attractive, so enticing, so desirous. The second thing we see then is that this Christ, the worthy Christ, is glorified. The mind of Christ is genuine humility, and it describes it, and then we're shown that the worthy Christ is glorified. And why is this here? So that we will want it. Verse 9, for this reason. What reason? Because he did three things. He considered, he emptied, and he humbled. Because he did three things. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and at, the at every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God Father, there are in these three verses quickly then, I think, four reasons, four reasons why you will want humility, four reasons why I will seek for humility and find it inviting, and I will ask God, Lord, give me more of this. First, humility is esteemed by God. Humility is esteemed by God. I already read a bunch of verses at the beginning. We could find this in lots of places in the Bible. But here we're not just told. Here we're shown. For this reason also God highly exalted him. We find this in the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who uh, I believe it's in Romans, it says that he was 
um, raised from the dead with power and declared to be the Son of God. He humbled, humbled, humbled himself down to the lowest place and then was buried and entombed and kept and sealed. And on the third day he was raised. And that was the Father saying, He has completed the work I've asked. It is finished. Now I will begin to do what I have wanted to do from all eternity past and will continue to do for all the rest of eternity. I will now exalt my Son. I will lift up this one who has been bowed down. God highly exalted him. Super exalted him. There's a way you could read that. The end of Christ's humility is not lowness. Isn't that a crazy thought? Does God desire you to be low? You could kind of answer that, yes. But in the ultimate sense, the answer is no. Nor was it ultimately the Father's will for the Son to be low, but rather it was through the path of humility that the Son was exalted to the highest place. And this is why you're going to want humility. It is not wrong for you to desire glory. You were designed for it. The problem is you and I go about it a billion wrong ways. We were created for, for one glory that alone satisfies, that alone is from God, that, that alone we cannot earn but is given as a gift and at the end of the day gives all glory back to God. And humility is the path of finding it. Humility itself is esteemed by God. The end of Christ's humility is Christ's exaltation. And so it is with you, brother and sister. The end of your humility is exaltation. In God's time, in God's perfect way, you go, well, I'm worried about that I'm going to get you know, too greedy for it. Don't. In this sense, because C.S. Lewis is one who said, the Lord testing our motives finds our desires not too strong but rather far too weak. We are more committed to passing adulation, to empty glories, than we are to the glory that comes only from the Lord. Humility will not leave you crushed. It will leave you Christ-like. Humility will be valued by God. It will be seen by God. Humility is known by God, and that is all that matters. That is the motive why you seek it. In places that are private, that are hidden, that, that are completely unknown to any human eye, the Lord God knows your humility, brother and sister, in your service to others if you so choose it. And that is worth it. So why do you yearn for humility? Why do you long to be free of pride? Not just because pride makes everything more complicated and miserable. That's true, but that's not anywhere near the highest reason? Why do you hunger for a larger soul, a self-giving spirit? Why? Answer, for the honor of God. And God tempts you with that reward. He is not afraid that your desires are too strong to be rewarded. He is happy to give honor for your humility and love. And that's very good news. The worthy Christ is glorified. And may we share in that. The Father has raised the Son. The Father has ascended the Son. The Father has seated 
the Son. He's enthroned the Son. He's honored the Son. And in that, we rejoice. And our hope is that in some small way, we might share in it. Second, humility is esteemed by God and humility is rewarded by God. I know that's similar, but it's different enough. Humility is rewarded by God. Again, verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and he bestowed on him. The word for bestowed is, is literally the word graced. It's a gift. The father graced him with a name. This is crazy and mind-boggling, and I don't fully understand it, because he himself, who was and is God and has been for all eternity and who inhabited the highest place, is now given something new by what he has done in his self-humbling. He is given a new name above every name. He's graced with a new above all name. To know that the Father graced the Son, do do you hear in that the the joy of the Father? Do you hear in that the, the pleasure of the Father to do this for His Son? His Son who never disobeyed. His Son who was willing to take upon all the pain. Think of the joy of the Father saying, I'm so glad to grace you, my Son, My glorious son with this name. Humility is rewarded by God. So why will you want humility? Well, among other things, for the reward of God's grace. For the reward of God's grace. You should scratch your head at that phrase and say that those words don't go together. Reward and grace don't go together. Which is it? Did you get rewarded for something you did or is it the grace of of God. It's mind-boggling, isn't it, that the Lord would condescend to save us from our sin and our rebellion and our betrayal, and then he would empower us by his Spirit to be like Jesus Christ. That's a gift upon gift, but that's not even the end. And then on top of it all, to whatever faltering degree we find in our character growth in humble Christ likeness at the end of it all he will then reward us for it you can call that a reward but I'm sorry that's grace humility is rewarded by God third third reason that you and I are going to want to seek humility and this is putting all the pieces together in a sense humility rewarded glorifies God. Humility glorifies God, but then he rewards it, and the full circle of it, the humility then rewarded, rightly esteemed for what it is, all of that ultimately points back up to God. That's what we have in 10 and 11. He graces Jesus with a name so that everybody, everywhere, and everything all over all of Tarnation are going to bow to that name. That's what verse 10 says. Tarnation is somewhere in the Greek. I'm just sure of it. And verse 11 finishes, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And why? What's the end game? To the glory of God the Father. The Son submitting himself to the Father, and then the Father in return rewarding the Son, all of it is to the praise 
of the Father in his planning and being the architect of this amazing work. Why do you want glory? Sorry, why do you want humility? I said, because it will be rewarded. And we struggle a little bit. Well, maybe I'm selfish in wanting that reward. Don't worry, because that reward will give glory back to God. When you humble yourself and the Father rewards you for it, if and whenever He chooses to do it, in whatever way, either in this life or in eternity, the end of all of that will give glory and praise back to His name. Rest assured, it's fine. You're not going to take His place. You're you're, you're not going to overstep your bounds. You're just going to be a little peace bubbling up in that beautiful stew of the glory of God pointing to him. Or to say the same thing another way, when you choose submitted obedience, then through your humility, the Father will glorify himself. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard when you have rights. When you've not been treated according to your position, maybe even your dignity as a human being or a spouse or a friend, it is hard, isn't it? But the Father will glorify himself through your humility. All of creation was made to reveal the beauties and the perfections of the Creator. All of creation was was meant to reflect back and and lift up how gorgeous the creator is, how illustrious the creator is, and to demonstrate that. But in pride, we have corrupted our purpose. In pride, we stand and pound our chest and say, look at me. What do I deserve? Next time you pause to contemplate your rights, consider... Jesus is right. I I, I have to give the caution, right? There there is a time and a place for a boundary, right? Okay, I said it. You agree. We all nod our head. But, but, But within the realm of an appropriate submissive humility, it's an obedience that when we can find no desire in our flesh to pursue it, we find a supernatural desire in the Spirit of God living in us and the Lord Jesus Christ living his life through us. And he says, this is why I came to live in you, to make you more like me. And it is the most awesome thing you've ever experienced when we do it. Come on, this is what you want. In corrupting our purpose through our pride, now we are prone, if left to ourselves, to live hollow, empty shells of life adrift in the tides without any reference point but then Christ comes and he saves and he rekindles in us a desire to give glory to the creator and he renews in us the sight for the beauty of all that he is and he restores in us a a fervency he fortifies in us an interest to magnify him. And one of the ways that we magnify his glory is by submitting to his work of humility in us. Fourth, and final reason why you and I will want this, and I've been talking about it since we began this morning, but I want to pull it out and look at it together. 
The beauty of humility in the Father and the Son is captivating. I don't know any other way to say it. It's, it's not expressly written in this passage, but it's written all over this passage. I, I, I have no imaginations that I am a naturally humble person, and you should have none about yourself either. But when we allow the Spirit of God to wash over us all of the dynamics of what's happening in this passage, we cannot help but be overwhelmed with the beauty of this relationship between the Father and the Son, which is so invested with humility that it captivates us. And we go, I don't know where this came from, but I'm, I'm like really jazzed to go out and be humble today. Where did that come from? The beauty of humility in the Father and the Son is captivating. Let me just put some fine points to it. If you want to write it down under this, I've said it, but we'll summarize and finish. I want to say this with emphasis. The Father was pleased to honor the Son. I've already said that the Father honored the Son. I even said that he was pleased, but I want to emphasize it. The Father was pleased to honor the Son. That's what we find in this passage. Imagine you being a father, seeing your son, imagine you being a parent, seeing your child do what is right and humble and godly and good. Does not your heart burst to throw your arms around them and say, you've done so well. I'm so proud of you. Imagine the eternal father in his perfections of justice and righteousness and holiness, not desiring that ever more fully than you could ever imagine for his son in his perfect, beautiful humility. He who was, Scripture says, no, pardon me, come back to that. He who was pleased to glorify his son through angels at his birth and who was pleased to honor his son at his baptism by giving his voice from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased, listen to him. How much more will he not be greatly pleased to exalt the son? In his humility. The father was pleased to honor the son. The father was also pleased to grace the son with the highest name. He was pleased to grace the son with the highest name. Scripture says that he was pleased to crush him. If father was pleased to crush him, how much more was the father pleased to then reward him? How much more was he not greatly pleased to grace his son? And reciprocally, the son himself delights in all that the father does. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. I only do whatever the father tells me. This is my food, he says, John 4, to do the will of the father. And the Son will delight one day to the praise that it brings the glory of the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, if we have had time, talk about after the resurrection and after the end of all things and the renewal of all things. You know what the last thing is going to be that happens before eternity happens forever afterwards? The last thing that's going to happen before all eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, it says that when all things are set under his feet... That Jesus 
will give it all back to the Father so that God might be all in all. It's just a beautifully reciprocal relationship between the Father and the Son, and you and I are invited to get lost in the beauty of that relationship in their self-giving, self-humbling, rewarding, rich relationship. John Piper says this, from all eternity the Father has be has beheld the panorama of his own perfections in the face of his son. Say it again, from all eternity, the father has beheld the panorama of his own perfections in the face of his son. All that he is, he sees reflected fully and perfectly in the countenance of his son. And in this, he rejoices with infinite joy. Brothers and sisters, the son of God is beautiful. He is beautiful in his humility. And brothers and sisters, the Son of God is beautiful. He is beautiful in his exaltation. And we cannot help but see and be captivated by that beauty. But what makes it so beautiful is the self-humiliating of the Son in submitted obedience to the Father, which the Father then with infinite pleasure rewards and all of creation sings glory as a result. And so this is why. This is why this week you will submit to God. And you will choose to lose your rights. And you will ask the Lord for the grace to serve. And to follow in the path of the Lord Jesus and to lay down your rights and to make much of others. This is why you will do it because there is nothing more beautiful in all of creation than the Father's love for the Son. Praise God for the glory of humility. Stand with me and let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that you would sacrifice to allow your son to suffer, that you would be willing to hand him over to sinful men because he would need to be broken and tortured, crucified and killed, condemned and suffer for our sin. And yet through all that humility, you would exalt his name and bring yourself glory. Lord Jesus, if any are here in our presence who do not at this moment know the freeing and rescuing grace that is available to them through Christ, to have their feet washed and be made new and now be able to experience that eternally rich relationship that, Father, you and the Son have together, then we ask, would you break their hearts for it? that they might lay down their defenses and all of their plans and their desires and say, this is what I have longed for, a relationship like this to live in all my days. And Lord, might they now bow and name their sin, confess their brokenness, and cry out and ask for forgiveness that you will bring them to you and you're pleased to do so. Lord Jesus, those of us who know you, might we this week have the mind of Christ. This is your will. Create in us this desire, deepen in us this affection, because all of it will be for your glory. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.